Welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. I'm Jason Sachs. And I am an unusual guest. My name is Ryan Plater. <laughs> we could talk about classic comics too, but I was excited to see your Kickstarter project launch, A Hunter's Tale. What an interesting idea for a project. Uh, Thank you. Tell me Thank about you. it. Yeah, I, I would love to. Thank you for having me on here, Jason, first of all, and for giving me a chance to chat about this new comic of mine that I'm so excited to get into people's hands. Uh, so A Hunter's Tale was actually a poem that was written by my late grandfather almost 40 years ago at this point. And uh, so it's it's been in my life as long as I can remember. I was born in 79. So, um, so yeah, this has been around my whole life. And uh, my grandfather has a, a body of poetry. And this poem in particular has really resonated with me over the course of my life and I've always wanted to collaborate with him somehow on this you know make it visual in some way I'm a cartoonist and a university professor and you know I, I think in comics and so um, I've wanted to do this for a very long time but I feel like my cartooning chops were not quite up to the task of living up to my grandfather's words that he penned uh, several decades ago. But over the course of the past, you know, a couple of years of the pandemic and in the past six months of me illustrating this, um, I, I really felt like not only was I in a better place in terms of my level of cartooning, but also I felt like the world was in a place to hear this poem, which is uh, essentially, uh, uh, about reciprocated empathy. You know, this poem talks about two seemingly very different subjects, a hunter and his prey, and this unlikely understanding that they form with one another. So um, yeah, I'm just, I'm so excited to get my grandfather's work into, you know, a bunch of people's hands that he never would have suspected, you know, and way, way past his lifetime, you know, he's been gone for well over 20 years at this point, and uh, I'm really happy to continue his legacy. That's such a nice thing to keep his memory alive in such a unique way. Um, yeah, my grandparents, there's there's still mysteries in my grandparents' lives that I wish I had a chance to kind of interrogate them about more. Um, what about the poem really resonated with you in the past, and how is it different now for you? Um, so, like I said, it's it's this really timeless tale of empathy. And over the past couple of years of the pandemic, you know, we've we've all experienced these really divisive times, you know, from the insurrection at the Capitol to George Floyd to, you know, we're just in this day and age where people are feeling so polar opposite from one another. And it's so easy now to click a button and defriend somebody or surround yourself with people that are very much like you, like, like yourself. And uh, I think that's dangerous. I think we should not surround ourselves with people only like us. And uh, I think we should really be cognizant of interacting with people who are different than us, who look different than us, who think differently than we do and not cut them off or call them names or, uh, you know, I, I think we really need to come together these days. And essentially this poem talks about that in a very unpreachy way. You know, I almost feel a little, a little preachy talking about uh, the themes in this poem, but uh, it's, it's so deftly woven, so narratively driven, and in such a succinct way, it just kind of creeps up on you. And uh, I think for all those reasons, it's, it's resonated with me in the past and especially so in the present with everything we've been dealing with. I see such a passion in your face as you talk about this. <laughs> and I think we first talked years ago when you were still doing your diary comics and picked up one or two collections of those. Um, I'm, I'm not sure I remember you talking about your grandfather, but I, I know how connected you are to family and how important that is to you. So it's a cool idea to kind of really keep his memory alive in a, a very particular way. Um, uh, I'm not sure I have a question there as much as an observation. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> 
did you get a chance to tell him when he was around how much you thought of his poetry? You know, I didn't. Uh, I think when he was around, I didn't understand how cool it was, what he was doing, you know, that he was, that he was being creative and uh, in this just radically unpretentious way. Like he, he did not make poetry to sell. He didn't make poetry to find a name for himself or distribute it. He made poetry for people who were having a birthday or an anniversary or were retiring. And he was just, you know, living his life in a small town and he uh, retired in Colorado and lived in a little log cabin on the North Fork of the Gunnison River. And that first page in the comic that you can see on the Kickstarter at ahunterstale.com, that first page is a depiction of that cabin. And it really did look like that. He lived right next to that river. I remember visiting him when I lived in California growing up and inner tubing down that river right next to their house. And uh-huh. I have very, very fond memories of that. Uh, he's your paternal grandfather, right? What does your dad think of the comic? Seeing it, uh, do you think it's a good tribute to him? So in my dad's words, he cannot wait to get a hold of the book so that he can brag about his dad and his son all at once. <laughs> <laughs> that is so cool. Now, why do you feel like it took you some time to be ready to draw this? Because you've been drawing for a long time, obviously, since you're a kid, but pretty serious about it for quite a while. Yeah, you're right. I have been drawing a while, but I think if you look through my body of work, like look at some of those first autobio comics you picked up, you know, those autobio strips, like, you know, they're, they're a little rough. (laughs) And I really wanted to feel more confident in, in my cartooning ability. And not only have I been cartooning, but I've also been teaching for the past, you know, over a dozen years now, I've been teaching longer than that, but I've been teaching comics specifically for over a dozen years at this point. And so over the course of having, you know, X hundred students come through my classes and critiquing that many, you know, multiples of that many comics, because every student produces three X comics per class, um, it's really honed my uh, understanding of comics, understanding of the mechanics of comics, uh, what I'm looking for in comics, what I want to see for my own work in comics. And after, you know, almost 20 years of making comics at this point, I feel this sense of confidence in, in what I'm doing. Not everything I do comes out perfectly, but there's an understanding, a better understanding in my own mind of when something lands on a page, I can see that it's working compositionally or it's not, or I can alter things and make better decisions than I could have 20 years ago, than I could have 10 years ago. Um, So I I really feel this like, I I don't know, like I feel like I've reached my grandfather's level, you know, (laughs) like I was always trying to climb up to that in terms of what I wanted to do with his poem. And, And I feel like we, we might've hit some sort of equal ground here. <laughs> oh, wow. That's a really nice way of putting it. Yeah, I think there's something about working in comics in particular that it takes a while to really truly master it. Um, the form of it, the per- perspective, how much detail to include in a page. As I look at the Kickstarter, for example, I see a lot of detail on the pages that brings the cabin to life. But you, you obviously have thought about just including just enough information to really bring it alive it's not hyper detailed in any way not that that's your style either but um as you were thinking about the page how much of it was kind of automatic and instinctive and how much of it was you really consciously thinking about the way you created it that's that's a difficult question i i feel like as the years progress things become more instinctive Mm -hmm. um I, i think that we're like as artists, as cartoonists, there's always some level of instinct and knee-jerk reaction as to, I, I think I want to do this. You know, we don't necessarily sit down and say, well, I'm going to do a moment-to-moment transition here and then uh, aspect-to-aspect panel transition right. after that, you know, like it, it's not that 
planned, but when things go awry, <laughs> you can often come back to those comics mechanics and see, oh, okay, this, this panel transition seems kind of choppy here. What did I leave out? Or like, you know, I, I think back to the early days before I made any comics, uh, published comics, self-published comics. And I was going around to uh, conventions and chatting with my heroes. And I remember going up to Sergio Aragones and putting some, you know, I'm sure it was some awful comic in front of him and said, <laughs> what do you think? And he was nice enough to, to talk to me about it. And he'd say, oh, well, I, I don't see an establishing shot here. It's like, oh, of course, like I need an establishing shot so people understand where they are. And after hearing that, after practicing that, after coaching students through that, after doing this for almost 20 years, that becomes ingrained and innate. Like I, I understand I need an establishing shot to start a story unless you're going to make something real mysterious and have some, you know, slow reveal, like a, a lost or uh, something like that. Um, so yeah, I, I guess a lot of things are more ingrained and innate at this point, but yeah. that's come after a couple decades of banging my head against this stuff and trying to learn it, you know? Yeah. I think that comes with anyone as they do something for a long period of time. Right. I'm sure. You feel yeah. that way with your teaching. I feel that way with my work. Certainly where like some stuff I could practically do on my sleep because I I've done it so much and uh, you go through certain rituals in a way, right. You know how to approach something you hear this also with filmmakers, right. They, they have their style. They know, okay, this is the time I need the Dutch angle. This is the time I need the crane shot to emphasize whatever. And it just is uh, this automatic feeling. Yeah. Uh, it's the great it's funny you get to that point too. Completely. Yeah. It's funny that you mention all that because a lot of those camera angles are ways that we can talk about framing comics panels as well. Right. And initially when I present all these different options to my students, it's overwhelming. It's like, oh gosh, do I do a worm's eye or a bird's eye or uh, a standard quotidian eye level shot? Or is it close? Is it far away? Is it a medium shot? And they can get overwhelmed. I remember getting overwhelmed as a young cartoonist and thinking, what in the world should I use now? But when you come back to the fact that the story, the narrative should dictate what's happening in the panels, that pairs down your options a lot and make things really easy. So, you know, if there's a climactic plot point uh, or something exciting happening, you might want to devote more space on the page to that. Or if there's, you know, a tall building and you want to emphasize it, then figure out where you can put a tall panel on that page. Um, you know, and there's, there's other comics limitations too. Like when you put uh, two small panels in front of one tall panel, that gets confusing because you read from left to right, you go down, you forget that other one, and then it's a confusing read at that point. But if you flop, flip flop those around with a tall panel coming first and follow it by a couple smalls, then you're in business because you read from left to right, top to bottom, and you get all of them, uh, understandably. So yeah, it's a lot of like understanding the limitations, but also allowing the story to dictate what should happen physically on the page. Uh, and again, after a bunch of years <laughs> right. of doing the same thing, it starts to become a little easier. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, and I see it as I, as I leaf through the book online too. I love the scene on page four where you have the dog watching your grandfather walk out of the room and you get a little bit of sense of drama of the dog watching him. You know, this is going to be something significant. And then dog runs over to him so you get a sense of crossing space and, and energy to it. Like it, it, I could see this as something that was both kind of well thought through, but also... Um, little, little tributes as well that you wanted to throw in there. Yeah, I, uh, you know, jumping back to Sergio Aragones, um, he's one of my Mount Rushmore of cartoonists, yeah. you know, <laughs> and I was lucky enough to bring him to campus one year. Uh, I'm the director of the Michigan State University Comics Forum, and uh, I was interviewing him for a podcast we do here. And one of the questions that he gets asked a lot, and I, I, the, the person I was, I'm trying to remember if it was me or the person I was with who was asking him, but basically asked him, how long does it take you to do a page of comics? And he said, oh, you know, I'd say it's about 50 years at this point. <laughs> <laughs> and that was such a perfect answer because yes, he can do it a million times faster than 
he used to do, but he's had 50 years of doing this to be able to get to this point. So it's not how long does a page take you? It's like, you've taken this long to get here. You've got this amount of uh, experience under your belt. And man, I, I sure hope to get there. So on the opposite side, your son did a comic that you did a Kickstarter for. What a fun thing. How did, <laughs> tell me how that came about. Oh man. Well, that was a result of the pandemic. Uh, so if anybody wants to check this out, they can go to tinyurl.com slash honk comic. So the comic is called Honk and Friends. Um, and my son, completely of his own volition, decided to make an entire eight-page comic. And this is not, you know, me, the cartoonist and university professor lording over him saying, hey, make this comic. I It was completely and utterly hands-off. And he, I don't know if he just by osmosis sees me doing it or what, but um, he made a whole darn book and he came to me, you know, we were walking around the neighborhood at that time. Cause it's, you know, it was all we could do in early 2020. Um, or maybe it was, maybe it was late 2020, regardless, we were taking a walk and he says to me, daddy, I want to sell my comic book door to door. And I said, oh man, uh, you know, that would be an amazing thing to do. And I would love to help you with that ordinarily, but it's pandemic times. So uh, maybe we could think of something else. Um, and I told him, I have an idea. We could sell it online. There's this thing called Kickstarter and we could put it up there and people could have a chance to buy it from you online and we could do that. And he said, okay. So if you look through that Kickstarter, it is entirely Owen's words. Like I, I brought him over and asked him a few questions and I would type while he spoke to me. And so the Kickstarter is his. And uh, of course, I, I helped orchestrate things. And But he was there for fulfillment, too. He signed 125 limited edition prints. He helped pack and ship all those books. It was really a family affair. And when we first launched that thing, we thought, okay, you know, we'll sell like maybe 5, 10, 20 if we're lucky. And we'll just print them out on my home computer here. And then that first day, I think we got like a hundred backers wow. and it was just a, a couple week campaign. And by the time we were done, I think it was well over 300 backers and we had over 450 of his very first comic book printed. Uh, it, wow. it became, it became apparent in very short order that we were not going to be able to print this on our home computer. <laughs> And so thankfully, I, I have a very good relationship with a printer in town here who's also printing a Hunter's Tale uh, and has printed a few of my books in the past. Uh, and uh, I called him up and I said, hey, Dave, Dave's my print rep. Hey, Dave, uh, I've got this thing going on here. I showed him the page. <laughs> I'm like, I need some help, man. Can we can we do this as a, a print on demand or offset? Or you know, so he gave me a few quotes, and it made sense to to do a, a, a digital print run of it. So you know, the rest is history. Four hundred and fifty copies later, um, we not only fulfilled all those orders, but we also socked away uh, over a couple thousand bucks in Owen's college fund wow, from nice. his very first comic book. And, uh, and even gave him a little spending money from it too. He ended up buying, uh, this little crate of stuffed dogs that he had his eye on because, you know, he put in a ton of work. So that's great. Uh, How exciting yeah. for the whole family, right? Oh my gosh. He, he took us on a wild ride. It was so much fun. <laughs> and the comics about bullying, right? That's right. Yeah. So, uh, and, and again, it was really interesting to see him come up with this on his own. I think it would, might have been influenced because they have uh, social workers in his school and they were doing lessons on bullying. And so I think he took some of that and included it in that story. But it was, it was really heartening to see what he came up with all on his own at, at seven years old. He's eight now. It just happened this past year in 2021. What a delight. Wow. That's <laughs> Thank so you. sweet. Yeah. How fun. And uh, not just Owen, but your, your, one of your students has a Kickstarter that probably just about to end, right? Yeah. So uh, I teach 
comic studio courses at Michigan State University. And uh, once the pandemic hit, well, I should rewind a little further. Pre-pandemic times, um, in my comic studio classes, I have the students create several short story comics throughout the semester. And by the semester's end, each student compiles their comics into one book. So this is not an anthology project. Each and every student has their own comic book at the end of the semester. And so typically we would take it to a local comic book store where they would sign and sell what they made over the course of the semester. So it's not just busy work, like they're making a product that they can then monetize. Because I, I tell my students, I know usually in an art program, money is like, you know, a four letter word, but I tell them, if you're not making money from your art, you cannot keep doing art. Like, yeah, you can right. go get a barista job or, you know, do it on the side, but you're going to be so worn out at the end of that. If you have any hope of making artwork, you got to monetize it. And here's a way that you can do it. So uh, when the pandemic hit, that in-store signing stuff evaporated. So we moved online. Everybody knows that story, but I converted those professional development opportunities into online professional development opportunities. So we had these online events. And for my advanced comic students, I, I gave them a choice of three different things at the end. They could do nothing when they got to the end of the class, meaning they, they have their book and that's it, it's done, like they're wiping their brow and they've had enough. And that is just fine. I mean, we've all been through hell and back these two years and I don't want to put a bunch of stress on anybody. So that's uh -huh. option one. Option two is to essentially create a PayPal button, send me the code, and we pile it all up on this page on my website where people can cruise through uh, their pitch videos and their cover designs and see if they want to support these up and coming artists. So some of them will make some money that way. And the third option I give them, my advanced students, is to be coached through a Kickstarter campaign over the course of the semester concurrently as they are making their comic. And both of those things are a ton of work. Making a comic is a ton of work. Doing a Kickstarter is a ton of work. But I have this entire outline for the semester. Each week, they do a little piece of the Kickstarter puzzle. And by the time the end of the semester rolls around, they're ready to press that launch button. So I've had a couple students, one in 2020, take me up on that, and another in 2021, just about to wrap up here at the start of 2022. Um, and the first student who took me up on that offer sold her very first comic for over $2,500. Wow, nice. If you told me I could make 2,500 bucks <laughs> on my first comic 20 years ago, you would have thought you were crazy. I, I was taking my work around to retailers, begging them to take the, this stuff on consignment mm -hmm. in hopes that I might someday get a little bit of money from this. And, you know, it was uh, uh, Yeah, and there you, know, you, go, you go into a comic shop and they have their little wall of zines. And you're like, as a, as a reader, I'm like, what do I pick? I don't know how to choose between these, right? But there it is up for everybody on the platter in a way. Yeah, yeah. And on Kickstarter, it's, Benefit for it's everybody. definitely, I mean, you've got this global platform with Kickstarter, anybody can go there and see it. And on top of that, I, I am a big proponent of Kickstarter, uh, because the comics section on Kickstarter has really formed this amazing community. There's a bunch of people there who are not just launching, but also backing other projects. You know, you look at people who launch and it's like two projects launched or three projects created 70 backed or 85 backed or a hundred backed. So they're not just going there for this quick cash grab. They're going there to buy their comics. This is, this is their, their Wednesday stop off. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it's really become this incredible community there. And I think it's a, a great place for people to get started. No, I'm a big Kickstarter person. Uh, I'm looking now to see how many projects I've backed. It's well over 200, <laughs> I think. Nice. Uh, That's a good record. <laughs> oh my God, it says 300. You might be my wow. 300th project. Wow. <laughs> um, but uh, quite a few years ago now, I, I created one project that failed. And I wish I had had your instructions on how to do this. 2013 is when I launched it. Probably before the, pro the platform was fully mature, among other things. 
and you know the money I was seeking was probably too much. I could talk about this all day long, but uh, what yeah, did you launch out of curiosity? I'd I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, well, so you you know I have my my love for classic comics, hence mm-hmm. classic comics cavalcade, and um, friends with Don McGregor, the classic Marvel comics writer, who among other things was famous for his work on Black Panther. Mm. Um, and he had an indie comic in the 80s called Saber uh, that concluded in the middle of a storyline. And Don had written a full other full graphic novel of Saber that had never been attached to an artist. Mm. So um, actually at San Diego 2012, I think, um, I spoke to the artist Trevor Von Eden, who had got an Inkpot Award that year, mm. and um, hooked Trevor up to draw the comic. So we were seeking money to pay for Trevor's page rate because I wanted to get an equitable, fair page rate. Um, but we just fell quite a bit short of what we were looking for. I just didn't have the hustle you have. <laughs> but it's one of the real tragedies of my comic side career because it would have been a beautiful book. And I was just so thrilled about getting it out. But, um, and Trevor's art was amazing, fascinating man as well. Don himself was also just just a really in, incredibly impressive person. Um, I would have loved to shepherded this into existence, but it just never quite worked out. It sounds like such a cool project. I would have loved to have seen that. And if you ever want to chat Kickstarter strategy, I'm happy to do that. Uh, but you mentioned it was happening in 2013. I launched a crowdfunding campaign in 2013 as well on Indiegogo. I did not go to Kickstarter then because at the time Kickstarter was asking for about double the amount of fees that Indiegogo was asking for. So they took about nine-ish percent, whereas Indiegogo took about four and a half percent. And I had not done a Kickstarter in a number of years since then. Um, When I started researching it again today, they're about equal. They're both about nine, 10% or so. And on top of that, Kickstarter is the more well-known platform. Why not go with that? Indiegogo's also had some like tarnished reputation because the comic skaters are kind of heading over to Indiegogo way. Yeah. Um, so for all those reasons, Kickstarter seems like a no-brainer. Uh, you know, it's got the name recognition. Uh, it's like synonymous with crowdfunding. Uh, at the time, I thought, you know, if they're taking half as much money from me, and I'm going to be the one bringing people here. I, I don't think many people are just going to find me. Uh, then why not go with Indiegogo? Now I feel differently. Not only are they leveled off in terms of fees that they take from you, but I actually think that Kickstarter does a pretty amazing job of putting your project in front of potential backers. Um, I saw that with my son's campaign. You know, the first day or two, we're like, oh, look, there's mom and dad, there's grandma and grandpa. And, you know, we see these names, here's, here's our neighbor. And then by day three, four, we start seeing names. And my wife and I are looking through them at night saying like, do you know who that is? Like, no, I thought you know who that was. And so people we did not know started finding this project. And if you know Kickstarter, they have a homepage where they feature product projects. They have a project we love tag where they feature projects. They also send out emails where they'll feature different projects. They've got Kickstarter reads, they've got Twitter accounts, they've got all sorts of stuff. So they're frequently pushing projects that they see as valuable. So uh, yeah, I, I have a lot of good things to say about Kickstarter. <laughs> I get out there about once a month and just browse around to see what's out there. And um, yeah, I'm always finding really interesting material too. A lot of people like your students who are relatively young cartoonists and doing passion projects, which I always find really interesting. Even if they don't quite meet the mark artistically because they don't have the 20 years of experience, just read the passion in every page. Uh, I mean, I come from a a long, a a loving uh, zines and self-published material. And this is really the best way to get kind of a curated list of self-published material. Definitely. It's, it's a big time democratization of the medium of comics. I mean, <laughs> even old people like me, you know, I'm creating <laughs> this weird little four and an eighth by five and a quarter inch book about my grandfather's poem. Like who's going to pick that up? Who's going to publish that? Nobody's going to publish that, <laughs> but 
I sure as heck want that in the world. And evidently there are a couple more people that do too, because you know this, this project is over 200% funded at this point. So I am awfully thankful that this platform exists. So you've been teaching cartooning for quite a while now, you said 12 years. Uh, do you see any kind of trends in the, in the comic, people creating comics? Um, people, or, or is it all tends to be people who like to do autobiographical, share their life stories? Um, what sort of things you know, do you see in, uh, commonly with your cartoonist students? So I welcome students from any major, any walk of life. They don't have to be art students. I've had English majors. I've had music majors. I've had undergrads, grad students, you know, game design students just across the board. And I love when different people will come into my class, like not just the art student. Um, so I see a lot of different stories being told. And I try to foster that too in my lectures when I show examples of comics. It's from across the board, like I very deliberately include examples from mainstream American comics to alternative comics, to European comics, to manga, to, you know, web comics, print comics, uh, modern, uh, classic comics, you name it. I want everybody to feel represented when I lecture and give examples of comics. And I also want everybody to learn as well and see something that they're not familiar with. So I, I really try to foster this sense of, um, you know, an ability to do whatever you want in comics. Mm -hmm. um, I, I show them weird stuff like Rabbit Head by Rebecca Dart. And inevitably that is really inspirational to people. Uh, I'm not sure if you've read that or not. It was oh. put out by Alternative Comics. Oh gosh, probably about maybe 15, 20 years ago at this point. And it's this surrealistic tale about this anthropomorphic female rabbit headed figure who's bounding around this surrealistic landscape on her flat faced dino neck horse beast. It's insane, but wow. it's a very interesting way to tell a story because it starts out in a strip of panels, you know, just going across the page. Mm -hmm. And then at one point after she gets on her flat faced dino neck horse beast and starts bounding across this landscape, she <laughs> spits and her spit bifurcates as it comes off and it hits both a tree and it hits the ground. And once it does that, there's these little diagrammatic circles that pop up and move outward and downward to fork this narrative. So the uh, central narrative is still her bounding across this landscape, but the top narrative is then this piece of spit that hit the tree and how it starts to grow into this animal and jump off the tree wow. and bound through this landscape. The part that hit the wow. ground is then you know, growing into this uh, flora uh, and gets approached by another beast who's looking to eat it. All that to say, this narrative keeps forking off first into three tiers, then into five tiers, then into seven tiers. And so you have all these concurrent narratives happening on the page all at once. I mean, try to imagine another medium where that could happen. Right. You know, right. Film, you, you could do picture and picture and picture and picture, but your mind just cannot intake that all at mm -hmm. once or like prose, you know, what are you going to do? Type on top of text? Like it just, it just doesn't work. But in comics, you can step back and view the page as a whole, or you can kind of zoom in and look at each individual row of panels, each individual tier, and then understand that all this stuff is happening at once. And then eventually these multiple tiers of panels start forking back into each other from seven to five to three oh, wow. to one. Okay. And it converges back into this single tiered narrative. It's brilliant. If you huh. haven't seen it, I would highly suggest looking it up. Okay. Rabbit Head by Rebecca Dart. It's it's incredible. So I show them that for, you know, some things that can be done in comics that they typically don't think of. And I had this music student that ran with that idea. She essentially made a comic about a, um, a concert. And it started with all these different characters, all these different, you know, 
20 somethings uh, or, you know, wherever they were in their life in their dorm room or out at pizza or at a party or whatever. And then they eventually grab their instruments or make their way into one another's lives. And then these tears start converging when they find one another and you can see them all in one panel. And likewise, until they get to the concert hall and they all enter this singular doorway and then we have the concert in a single panel when they've all joined one another. And it's, uh, I, I love seeing different, unique, interesting things that people will do. So in answer to your question, I'm, I'm not seeing a trend in terms of theme <laughs> yeah. because I, 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 I intentionally try to foster, hey, you student came to this class to make something like you had an idea when you signed up for this comics class what you wanted to do and i want to help you make that like that is the final project in my fundamentals class is i want you to do what you came here to do now that you have all this stuff built up over the course of the semester all these lessons built up and skills built up so uh i just love seeing what they'll do, whether it's superhero or autobio or experimental or what have you. It's uh, it's a joy to to see all these nascent comic creators try out their skills for the first time. And doing it in their own way. How exciting for a teacher, right? Totally, yep. It's every teacher's dream to have the, <laughs> these students who just produce this incredible work. Wow. Yeah. Huh. Uh, are you still doing your daily comics or have you moved beyond that now? I am not doing the autobio comics. Um, the autobio strips kind of morphed a few times and I uh, did autobio through about 2013. Okay. And my next book after that was Coin Op Carnival. It's still mm -hmm. nonfiction, but it's about electromechanical coin operated amusement devices. So in layman's terms, that means old pinball and arcade games. Uh, and all the stuff we're talking about is manufactured prior to 1978. So prior to the advent of pr printed circuit boards and television screens and stuff like that, it's all electromechanical technology where, you know, switches are either touching or they're not in order to allow electricity to move through a machine. Like you can actually see these switches touching or not. It's not all embedded on a circuit board. Um, and things like stepper motors and, um, you know, uh, all kinds of different stuff that you can see and adjust with your hand or a tool rather than, you know, a soldering iron or a, a magnifying glass or whatever you do with circuit boards today. I don't know. I'm not good at that. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's really fascinating technology and people are scared of it because they'll lift up a play field of a pinball machine and they'll just see this rat's nest of wires in there and think, Oh my God, what do I do with this? But really once you start to understand it, it's very modular. It's very compartmentalized and you can have a replay unit or a game over unit or a relay of some sort. Uh, and if something's not working right, you go investigate that particular portion and if the switches aren't moving the way they're supposed to, then you adjust it and then it works correctly. That's a, a very simple way to put it, but essentially that's what's happening. So in this book, Coin-Op Carnival that we made, I say we because uh, it was co-written uh, with my best bud, Nick Baldridge, uh, and he is just an absolute technical genius uh, and myself, and I fully illustrated the whole thing. Um, and throughout this issue, we have everything from an interview with the most prolific pinball designer of all time. His name is Wayne Nyans, and uh, he was 100 years old when the issue came out. He's still living today. He's 103 oh. years old and just sharp as a tack. He, uh, I, I can't say enough good things about him, wow, but we also have... Cool game reviews and tech segments and product spotlights and paper craft models and letters columns, just a ton of stuff jammed into this full color 64 page book, including many pages of full-blown comics. Wow. Very cool. There's something about technology that's analog. That's, that's like not computerized in any way. That's very kind of comforting or interesting these days. We're, I mean, obviously we're all carrying around this, these incredible technological devices in our pockets all the time. And um, I find like it's such nostalgia 
one of the reasons I like watching old movies too, is just like imagining the world before we had this technology, before there was, you know, 500 channels on TV and a computer in your pocket and streaming services and all that. You know, when life was not better, not easier, but just different. Feels like yeah. a lost America in a way. And this is Completely. technology that was popular before you were, or right around when you were born even, right? Yeah, a lot of it came out before I was born. That's true. Uh, but it's so gratifying to find an old game, you know, pick up an old pinball machine that's not working and then essentially bring it home and you clean everything. You take apart the gear, you clean it up, you put it back together and you do that for each one of these units. And then essentially it's 99% working and you just do some tweaks after that uh, to get these things gapped right and, you know, working like they should. And then you have a new game and then you can have fun with it. It's, <laughs> it's really rewarding. So you make you know, it sound like they're kind of indestructible in a way. Uh, these old games kind of are like, unless you spray them with WD-40, which is real bad. Don't do that. Okay. Or if you take a sledgehammer to them, I mean, they're awfully durable. Like I've had, I have a game right over here from 1972, this uh, William Swinger. You know, that's, that's a game that's what, 50 years old, half a century old at this point. I found it in some barn. I did exactly what I just told you, took it apart, clean it, put it back together. Voila, got a functional game now. <laughs> it's wow. so fun. Yeah, that is so fun. So along with the analog stuff, I saw in your Kickstarter video, you drew the comic by hand. Didn't use a tablet, didn't use an iPad or something. Uh, do you still like the feeling of a pen and ink on paper? Definitely. So, uh, but I'm not completely analog. There's my, my process is very convoluted and I'll try to go through <laughs> it in a, in a somewhat brief way. And if you have any questions, please ask, but, um, essentially I'll start off with a thumbnail sketch, you know, just a, a quick drawing in a sketchbook of what I think the panels might look like and you know, cross things out, move them around, make panels bigger, whatever, whatever I think needs to be done. And then I'll move to Adobe Illustrator, a vector okay. art program where I'll lay out the panels and the text exactly as I want it. And then I'll take that vector layout and import it into another program where I will digitally pencil. Uh, I'm using Clip Studio Pro. And so that Illustrator layout acts as my background. Then I pencil all the environments and characters and things on top of that. And once the digital penciling is done, then I will print out in blue line on Bristol, like on a physical piece of paper. Okay. And then hand ink everything, hand ink the lettering, panel borders, characters, everything. And then if I'm coloring it like a hunter's tail, I will scan that physically inked Bristol back into the computer and then color it in Photoshop. Do that umpteen times and then you got a book. So I'm kind of in and out of different programs. I have not important to ink it by hand. A couple reasons. Uh, first, I personally, this is, you know, all of this making process is so incredibly personal, but personally, I do not feel like I can get the control, the fidelity okay. that I want to an ink line on a screen. I've tried a bunch of things. I just, you know, maybe if I did it for a long period of time, I could do it, but I haven't pushed through it enough. I mean, I mean, I digitally pencil, I do that all the time, but as far as inking is concerned, I feel like I have much more control analog. Mm -hmm. So that's one reason. And the other reason, and I tell my students this all the time too, if you ink digitally, you've got a file. If you ink analog, you've got another sales potential. Right. <laughs> so, you know, as you probably saw on my Kickstarter campaign, those pages are moving. And if I did not do that, I would have left literally thousands of dollars on the table if I had inked it digitally. So um, I don't tell my students how they should do things, but I do make them aware of, hey, these, these are the realities. People don't want to buy a digital file from you. Uh, you know, these NFT things aren't really catching on. <laughs> I can't put an but, NFT on my wall. 
Exactly. <laughs> my art there on my wall behind me here. That's right. That's and um, right. No, that's important to me. And I'll seek out Kickstarters that have nice pieces of original art that I can buy as part of my support. I'm happy to cool. throw a few extra dollars that way cool. because um, I find it valuable to myself as having a physical artifact of this item. I buy original art too. too, right? Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I'm with you. Uh, I guess the last thing I want to ask about is your the conference at Michigan State. Uh, I is it still going? Uh, it sounds like a, a, a amazing experience. And I know I remember well how much passion you have for that. Yeah. So um, Jason's talking about the Michigan State University Comics Forum, and if anybody wants to check that out, they can go to comicsforum.msu, like Michigan State University. Edu comicsforum.msu.edu. And this is a, uh, an event that has been running since 2008. So we've been running this event for the past 14 years consecutively. Um, in 2021, we announced that this was going to be our last annual event and the Michigan State University Comics Forum was moving to a triennial event. Okay. But that is because there's a big conference called uh, Comic Studies Society, CSS, and they move around to a different location each and every year. But we have formed a partnership with CSS so that they will be returning to Michigan State University every third year. So uh, basically the uh, schedule is going to go MSU Comics Forum, then the following year we'll have uh, CSS, then the following year, we will have a less large conference. We'll basically be inviting uh, uh, a speaker to speak at that point. And then that will rotate every three years. So Comics Forum, CSS, Speaker, Comics Forum, CSS, Speaker. Um, so in 2022, this year, it'll be the first year that CSS is hosted at Michigan State University. And then 2023 will be uh, our speaker. And 2024 will be back to MSU Comics Forum. Exciting. So it's really growing and made reputation. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. We, we've just got a ton of comics resources at Michigan State University from the forum to, uh, you know, I was doing the podcast for four years where I was interviewing different award-winning professionally practicing cartoonists each and every month. Um, we have uh, the comics minor uh, that I mentioned to you a little earlier, um, and we even have the world's largest public collection of comic books that sits in our main library. There is no public collection of comic books bigger than ours. It's well over 300,000 cataloged issues and growing, uh, and we have a guy named Randy Scott to thank for that. Uh, Randy Scott is our comics bibliographer. He's been doing this since the early 70s, and he is still working today. Uh, I, I just can't say enough good things about Randy. He's you know so knowledgeable and so humble. He will tell you that he did not start this collection, which is true on a technicality. There was a professor at Michigan State University who was a a Pulitzer Prize winner, and he wrote this book called The Unembarrassed Muse. And in this book, he wrote about things like Harlequin romance novels and uh, pulps and comic books. And he had a collection of each of these things, and he gifted uh, about six to 7,000 comic books to Michigan State University Library. Now, again, this was in late 60s, early 70s when this happened. And when that happened, there was no place for comics in a library, but right. you don't say no to your Pulitzer Prize winning professor. So <laughs> like, well, what do we do with this? Uh, stick it in the basement and special collections. So that's right. where it sat for a while, but that was kind of the impetus for Randy to jump on board and say, hey, let's make something of this collection. And he started compiling more and more to the point where we have this world-class collection that we do today. And I, I want to say one more thing. I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm monopolizing <laughs> the conversation here. Sorry. <laughs> this is but wonderful. I, I wanted to mention the fact that even when I moved here about a dozen years ago, you know, I moved here in 2008, I guess it's more than a dozen years ago now, my gosh. Um, 
the first thing I wanted to do was come meet Randy. You know, I knew there was this collection. And uh, so I went down to the basement of the library and introduced myself and told him that I was going to be teaching there. And I could tell that he was even at that time, like not long ago, still like kind of keeping his head down, like hoping that things like, like the shoe didn't drop. And then they're like, Oh, I'll get these comics out of here, you know? And I'm like, Randy, no, I am going to do my very best job to blow this secret out of the water so that everybody knows about this thing, because <laughs> then, then they can't do that to you. Then they have this world-class collection that everybody knows about, and then they're not going to touch it. Uh, and that's what I was doing with the podcast for four years. Every single episode, I had a special collections highlight where we were talking about some different gem that we have in our collection from Walt Disney Comics and Stories number one to Wonder Woman number one to uh, first printings of Rodolf Topfer to modern stuff to, you know, it's, it's exhaustive, absolutely exhaustive. Wow. Yeah, I told you years ago, I got to get out there just to see the collection. It sounds incredible. It's like comics nirvana. You got to come. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Brian. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, course, do you have anything yeah. else you wanted to mention or plug? Um, I don't think so. Aside from directing people to a hunter's tale.com, I would love to see them over there. Uh, you know, I'm just, I'm so excited about this new comic that I feel like I'm working with my grandfather on, you know, it's, it's his words, it's his story. Uh, I'm, I'm doing my best to adapt it into comics form and put it in front of a new and different audience. And uh, I'm also really trying to keep these reward tiers affordable. Uh, you can get a kickstarted comic, 32 pages, full color, delivered to your door for 10 bucks. I have not seen a $10 comic on Kickstarter in I don't know how long. And this is not indicative of, of the quality. These will be offset printed at a very high quality. Uh, I'm working with a printer that I've worked with for over a dozen years on books and posters and have a very close relationship with. So um, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm very excited. <laughs> <laughs> You're glowing with excitement. <laughs> Thanks, Brian. This has been, like I said, really fun. It's great to catch up with you. Thank you so much, Jason. It's great to see you again. Oh, thank you.